Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. I thought I would begin tonight with a reference to the liturgy, as I always try to do as often as I can. And this will be to last Sunday, second Sunday in Lent. Uh, and I'll mention one feature from the Roman Rite and one from the Byzantine, because they... Uh, come to a very nice convergence. On the second Sunday of Lent in the Latin Rite, it has always been the practice, as far as we have a written record of liturgical texts, always been the practice to read the gospel of the transfiguration of our Lord. So you all will remember that. And this, of course, is done as a foreshadowing of the crucifixion and resurrection, which is to come. In the early days, early days, I mean, up till the fifth into the sixth century, at least, in the early days in the Church of Rome, they would have a special service for the second Sunday of Lent. Um, because the day before was one of those days that some of you who are approaching my age or beyond my age will remember, and maybe even some of you younger ones will have heard of them. Uh, the preceding day was one of the ember days, ember Saturday. And those who still keep the older calendar of the, of the Latin rite, of course, still have the ember days on the calendar. The ember days are the one of the oldest series of fast days in the uh, tradition of the Roman rite. And so they came one set per season, four sets a year. And they consisted of the Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday of a given week. And in the springtime, or approaching the springtime, the, the uh, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, the first week of Lent, were the Ember Days. And the Ember Saturdays, there was fasting on all those three days. But on the Ember Saturdays, there was the particular, uh, they were the particular days uh, for... Uh, ordination, ordinations in the Roman church. So there was a special vigil service, like in some ways, although it had a, a Lenten cast, of course, there was a special vigil service on Saturday night, modern, modeled rather like the Easter vigil, the Paschal vigil, with readings, many readings from the Old Testament, and then the particular reading of the gospel, the transfiguration of the Lord. And 
in the course of that liturgy, there were ordinations to all of the orders of the church, uh, priesthood, diaconate, episcopate. So this celebration of the transfiguration was seen as the direct liturgical expression of Lent as the journey to the resurrection, as we're calling this series. And you will recall that uh, at the Transfiguration, and I believe in the newer lectionary, the account from St. Luke's Gospel was read last Sunday. And you'll recall that the account tells us that, first of all, the Lord shone with a radiance, a brightness that was more glorious than the sun. And that radiance, first of all, permeated his body, his face, and also even extended into his garments. His garments themselves became as radiant as light. And St. Mark's Gospel says they were whiter than any laundry on earth could make them. <laughs> so this dazzling radiance, the glory, the overshadowing of the glory of God. One thinks of the verse from St. John's Gospel, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. So the disciples saw the glory of the Lord, and then there appeared Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah are the personifications of two very central sets, first the law and the prophets, Moses the law, uh, Elijah the prophets, but also the living and the dead. Moses from uh, the dead and Elijah who is described as never dying in some mysterious way after he's taken up into the heavens in the fiery chariot. And then we're told that there was a cloud of glory that overshadowed them and the disciples went into the cloud and that they heard the conversation that was going on between the Lord, who, again, let us be very clear, before his passion and his resurrection is shining with the light of divinity. And they are speaking, the gospel says, of the Lord's exodus, his exodion, which he was to shortly accomplish in Jerusalem. So they're speaking of his coming, his great saving act of his death and resurrection. They were talking about it. And the disciples listened in uh, to that conversation. So that's the, the liturgical illustration from the West. From the East, in the Byzantine rite, we don't have the Gospel of the Transfiguration on the second Sunday of Lent, but we do have a commemoration of a saint very beloved in the East, St. Gregory Palamas, who lived in the 14th century. First, he was a monk on Mount Athos, then he became Archbishop of Thessalonica. And he was part of a movement of renewal in the church, renewal in prayer, it was called hesychasm from the Greek word hesychia, which means quiet. And these were 
mainly a group of monks, Athonite monks, who took literally the words of the Lord that we should pray without ceasing and the words of St. Paul. And they claimed that such a thing was possible. They prayed uh, for their ceaseless prayer, the Jesus prayer. They prayed it to, to the point where they claimed that it entered into them and became part of their respiration, part of their heartbeat. And they claimed that in this prayer, they were united to the uncreated light of God. They made such a, such a claim. Some people denounced them, said that that's more than a human being can claim. But in time, this claim was vindicated because, after all, it is simply the claim that we make for all of the baptized. All of the baptized have become partakers of the divine nature, says second letter of Peter. So in this becoming participants of the divine glory and the light of the transfiguration, we see how this season, now last time I uh, spent a good deal of, of the time we had on trying to, as clearly as I could, present these dimensions of anticipation and fulfillment, of the not yet but already, of uh, the Lord saying in the gospel that the guests of the bridegroom don't fast when the bridegroom is with them, but the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they'll fast. About how, in, a, in ways which are only possible for God, the Lord is with us now and we with him. He has said that all power is given to him in heaven and on earth, that he is with us till the end of the age. But also, we must walk the road of the not yet. We must walk the road of the ascetic labor in order to attain to the fulfillment of the joy of union. And it's only possible, the whole, pretty much the whole talk last week was based on this, it's only possible to walk the ascetic walk unless one is energized to do it by the joy of the resurrection. And so I mentioned how historically uh, it is the Paschal celebration that gave birth to Lent, not the other way around. So we're going to go on this week to speak of the actual Lenten observance and how a form has been produced for that in the life of the church throughout her history. It's a form that is uh, sometimes people know very little about these days, and that's because of the minimalization, or as they like to say now, marginalization of fasting. So uh, to speak very plainly, uh, you can't have a fast without fasting. By definition, in the church, in all of the traditions of all of the apostolic traditions, this season, the 40 days, is the 40-day fast, whether we're talking of, of the Greek or the Latin or the Syriac or the other Coptic or other traditions. They all say the same. And 
that means that there is a continuity of observance. And historically, that is very much there as early as the third and going into the fourth century. I'm going to pick up here one of my favorite texts. I'm reading this to you for shock value. I'll say that in advance. This is a book, you would love to read this book if you've never read it, a book called Agaria's Travels. Uh, it's a famous book for anybody who wants to study the history of the liturgy, especially the development of the Lent and Paschal seasons and of the church year in general. Agaria was a lady, a lady from Spain, as the old song that they used to sing in my, when I was a boy said. Gary was a lady from Spain who, after the persecutions ended, we talked about a little bit of, about this last week, went on a pilgrimage to uh, not only to the Holy Land, but all the places along the way there and back that she could figure out that she could get to. And she has an amazingly retentive and descriptive and vivid memory of everything she saw and heard everywhere she went. And so she gives us a very valuable, precious thing in her travel journal, because that's what this is. It's her travel, travel journal. And she tells us of all of her experiences. And without this document, we would know a lot less about what Christians did, for example, in the fourth century. So uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the section about Lent, obviously. And this is what she said. Then comes the Easter season, and this is how it is kept. In our part of the world, we observe 40 days before Easter. Remember how I said last week that there's differences in the way the days are counted. So her part of the world, Western Europe, as far Western Europe as you can go, Spain or, or Ireland, but she doesn't come from Ireland. Um, we observe 40 days, but here... They keep eight weeks. It makes eight weeks because there is no fasting on the Sundays or the Saturdays except one of them, Holy Saturday. But apart from that, the people don't fast on Saturdays during the year. Now, we'll have to see what Agaria is meaning when she says fasting and not fasting. I advise you, do not retroject into this any modern notion. And then she says, the local name for the fast is Heorte. Now that's a paradox because Heorte uh, in Greek means the feast. So the popular name for the fasting season in, in the Greek that is used in Palestine at the time is the feast. And then there's quite a lengthy description, which I will not read about the services, but I, but I want to read about the uh, fasting practices. These are their customs of fasting during Lent. There are some who eat nothing during the whole week between their meal after the Sunday liturgy and the one they have after the liturgy on Saturday morning. These are the ones who are described as keeping a week. 
So, af- so after their meal on Sunday, then nothing more till the following Saturday, as I have described. Then there are the people here who have only one meal a day, not only during Lent, but also during the rest of the year, except when, when we do not fast during the Paschal season. Those who can't fast for a whole week long in the way I've described, eat a meal halfway through Thursday. Those who can't manage this eat on two days of the week. And those who can't manage this have a meal every evening. No one lays down how much is to be done, but each person does what he can. Those who keep the full rule are not praised. Those who do less are not criticized. That is how things are done. And this is what they eat during the Lenten season. In addition, as we do not eat any animal food, that means, by the way, no meat, fish, eggs, dairy products. In addition to this, the Christians in Jerusalem do not so much as taste a crumb of bread, nor any oil or anything which grows on trees. Only water and gruel. Lent is kept in the way I have described. (laughs) Now, the reason why that is interesting is Agaria is contrasting, as she does all through her journal, what she's used to that she finds in places that she travels to and those things that are different. And she says that the Christians in Palestine keep a much more, uh, much more austere fast than, than she is accustomed to. Uh, because they also omit, by the way, you have to put this in its context, this is not some, some sort of thing that has been imposed on them, that they are bound to. You notice it says, those who do more are not praised, those who do less are not blamed. Rather, this could be called a movement of popular piety. The people, the people themselves, this is even before organized monasticism, it's the middle of the fourth century. The people themselves have, or, have put together this Lenten discipline. And the things that she mentions as being uh, particularly noteworthy is that they don't eat bread. Why do you suppose they wouldn't do that? Well, it seems that they did not do that because of the Lord's words to Satan in his temptations, in which he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And why do you suppose they wouldn't eat anything growing on trees? Well, Adam and Eve, right? Who ate the fruit of the forbidden tree. So the popular piety of the Jerusalem Christians of the fourth century was to add to the already rigorous Lenten practice these additional two features, which generally uh, did not catch on throughout the Christian world. This was considered, uh, except ex- only by exception would you find people keeping such, uh, such an extreme fast. But how did and how do the Christians fast from then until now. What's the mechanics of it? Well, there's a lot of things, a lot of sources for that. And much of this 
much of this has been forgotten by Christians of the late 20th and 21st centuries, for whom, again, fasting has become uh, neglected, secondary, even a practice that is to almost totally ignored. But it can be said with certainty that from at least the fourth century and in some places for some time before that, Lent was observed this way. In the West, the weekdays were, con were considered to be Monday through Saturday. Monday through Saturday, I mentioned that last time. On those days, only one meal was eaten. Not one meal and two more meals that don't equal one meal. That No, one meal. One meal after Vespers. That's why in all of the churches of Rome, for century after century, the Lenten liturgy consisted of the celebration of known from the divine office, the ninth hour, uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, followed by the celebration of the mass. So a late afternoon mass, followed by the celebration of Vespers. Then the people took their meal. The meal was an abstinence meal, which means that no meat, as I said, no meat, eggs, or dairy products, or wine was consumed at the meal. On Sundays, now, now people have gotten a very, very modern notion that Sundays somehow don't belong to Lent at all, which is certainly a misnomer because every, every Sunday in Lent is called the first or the fourth or the fifth Sunday of Lent. Lent doesn't stop on Sunday. Lent was lightened on Sunday in the West by the Mass being celebrated at the usual hour in the morning. And then for the rest of the day, uh, you could eat, so more meals, but the same sort of food. The abstinence was not broken. So that's Lent in the West. Lent in the East is similar, a little bit of variation. The weekdays are Monday through Friday. And on, on the same strict fast throughout the day, one meal toward the end of the day after Vespers, with abstinence from all of the foods I mentioned, including fish. Uh, the West did not abstain from fish, it seems, but the East did, except on, on very festive days like the Annunciation. On Saturday and Sunday, Saturday and Sunday, uh, because Saturday was not considered, except for a holy Saturday, was not considered a strict fast day. Then the liturgy was celebrated in the morning. There was uh, then after the celebration of the liturgy, one could eat the usual meals throughout the rest of the day. But the same abstinence food in the East, they allowed the food to be cooked on Saturday and Sunday with oil and some wine. So that's the way Lent was observed for well over 90% of the church's history. So it's not some uh, obscure practice. 
something that century after century after century of Christian believers observed. Always there were exceptions, and there there always will be exceptions. There are those who could not keep the full rigor of the fast, and that was always understood for various reasons. Uh, Being too young, being too old, being sick, being pregnant, whatever. Uh, However, those were the exceptions. The ordinary rule was this strict observance of the fast and remains so uh, in most of the Eastern churches to this day. Now, what's the point of all that? That's the question. Well, first of all, the basic definition of fasting, the dictionary definition of fasting. Fasting is to go without food or drink for a certain specified period of time. That's the plain basic definition of keeping a fast. It doesn't so much have to do with kinds of food or such like. That that falls more under the umbrella of the word abstinence, abstinence from this kind of food or that kind of food. But to fast is to not eat or drink. That's at least the basic definition. You could say, well, is there such a thing as a partial fast? Well, perhaps there is. But in the ordinarily understood sense of the term, to fast is to refrain from eating and drinking. We're told of the Lord Jesus' fast in the wilderness that he ate or drank nothing. And by the way, he is not the only one who has been recorded as doing such a thing. So uh, it's not... uh, It's not some sort of directly supernatural uh, strength that gave him that ability. He is God, but he, he is God incarnate. And in his humanity, he endured voluntarily that fast. He did so as, let me turn to a reasonably contemporary spiritual writer, the Coptic monk, Matthew the Poor, whose meditations, he has a collection of meditations on the gospel called the Communion of Love. And one of the chapters in that book is the deep meaning of fasting. And he says this, the church imitates Christ. All that Christ has done, the church also does. He becomes her life. Christ's call to Matthew when he was still a tax collector, follow me, was intended by him to mean, take my life for you. Take my life for you. Fasting in the life and works of Christ ranks as the first response to the act of anointing and being filled with the Holy Spirit. For Jesus, I'm commenting now on on the, the words of Matthew the poor, For Jesus, after his baptism, receives the Holy Spirit in in his humanity, in his humanity. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon him by the Father in his humanity, which is the humanity of us all, which he has taken on. And that Holy Spirit, the gospel says, especially in the most vehement 
expression in St. Mark's Gospel, Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. The other Gospels say leads him, kind of more softer expression, but, but Mark uses that very vehement term. Holy Spirit drives the incarnate Lord into the wilderness, there to fast and there to confront the evil one. So it is his first response to the act of his being anointed and being filled with the Holy Spirit. It represents the first battle in which Christ did away with his adversary, the prince of this world. In his 40 days experience of absolute fasting, Christ laid down for us the basis of our dealings with our enemy, along with all of his, his allurements and vain illusions. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. For when a person enters into prayerful fasting, Satan departs. So, so we have added, therefore, to the basic dictionary definition of fasting, the basic scriptural definition of it, that it is the expression of imitating Christ who fasted. Imitating the apostles, who, though they were not known for their fasting, while the Lord was with him during his ministry, were known for it afterwards. It's mentioned several times in the Acts of the Apostles, for example. And we spoke last week about the place that it has in the Didache, that first century document. So with the Lord himself and the apostles, you have generation upon generation of saints, as Father Hezekiah was saying, both the canonized and the ones whose names that we do not know, who kept this practice. We have also mentioned before the words of the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, when you fast, do such and such, not if, but when. So it is assumed as having a regular place in the life of the church. Matthew the poor goes on to say, the apostles inherited the entire life of Christ and were eyewitnesses and partakers of his works and acts. They inherited the lengthy fasts they knew Christ had performed. They inherited nightlong prayer. They inherited struggle in prayer with frequent prostrations or even as the Lord with sweat like drops of blood. They inherited endurance and patience amid the insults and betrayal of comrades and the persecutions of those who opposed the faith. They inherited ministry in markets among the sick, the sinners, and the poor. They inherited agony, suffering, torture, crucifixion. The most precious and exquisite gift they inherited from Christ. The cup that I drink, you will drink also. So the church has inherited this living apostolic experience. And then finally, Matthew the poor continues in this reflection on fasting. We fast and offer our bodies as a sacrifice. Father Hezekiah was speaking of sacrifice before my talk began. The outward form of this is bearing fatigue. And if you do fast a real fast, I assure you, you will experience fatigue, especially 
in the early portion of it. Many, many people in asking me advice about fasting say, well, I find that after a day or two, I just can't bear it. Now, that would only be the case if someone had an actual medical condition that could not bear it. What is happening, you have to... Uh, <laughs> You have to advise the person, here's the good news and here's the bad news. What is happening is that if you, like me and like most, are accustomed to giving yourself far more than you need to eat, and you decrease that, at the beginning of that process, your body is going to throw a fit. And it's going to say, I want what you always give me. Even though it's two or three times what I need, that's what I want. And that's why people can get uh, tired and even, even a little distracted or have a headache or such, or such at the beginning of a fast. Under most circumstances, if you persevere, it will go away. It will go away. The body will learn to accept so we fast to offer our bodies as a sacrifice. Its essence is the intentional acceptance of death. The fast is an icon of death. Now, this does not mean, I'm not in, intending to say that one is to kill oneself through fasting, but this voluntary, and I stress voluntary, taking upon oneself of the fast is a sign, a sign of death, that just as we take upon ourselves the fast, when the hour of our death comes, we pray that we may accept it from the hands of God and not fight it. So, so that we may be counted fit to be mystically united in the flesh and blood of Christ. Fasting since it is an incomplete sacrifice because of sin. So all of our efforts are incomplete because we are sinners. But when they are united to Christ's fast, they are purified by his. Therefore, fasting has to be consummated in communion, partaking in his pure body and blood to become a perfect sacrifice, efficacious in prayer and intercession. And here, Father uh, Mattia, Matthew the Poor says, every Holy Communion has to be preceded by fasting, and every fast has to end with Holy Communion. So there is an inherent connection between the fast and the feast that the fast prepares oneself for. There is always an end. There is always arriving at home at the table of the Lord. So this rhythm of fasting and Eucharist, that's the rhythm that formed the pattern for Christian life, again, for the vast portion, the vastly large portion, of the history of the church. To fool around with that pattern is dangerous, is dangerous. And I'm afraid that the modern period has witnessed 
a good amount of fooling around with that pack. Now, let's summarize then, before we take our break, the practice of fasting has been sanctified by the example of Christ himself, the apostles and saints, faithful Christians during every period of the life of the church. This practice of fasting, and this is very important because one of the reasons why the practice of fasting has been so minimalized is that people have written it off as some form of self-punishment. It's been associated with that expression of religious practice that is primarily negative. That one has this practice imposed on oneself in order that one may try to somehow pay back for one's sins. And rightly, rightly, there is a negative response to that. For that is not the sense of fasting at all. Rather, the traditional understanding of fasting is that it is self-imposed. It is a discipline, not a punishment. It's in Its purpose is to increase vigilance, watchfulness, detachment from this world, and as a weapon for opposing evil. And so we have these standards in the church that have been set as to how to fast. One should not, according to this tradition, make up something on one's own, but one should be modeled. Again, it's a standard, like a a measuring stick, a standard to measure oneself with. And then finally, how well fasting works is in direct proportion to our continual struggle to live a life which centers on corporate and personal prayer, growth in love for God and neighbor, and the confrontation of our own sinful tendencies. So fasting is not meant to be seen as some sort of magic. Rather, it requires and is a tool to assist the confrontation with evil in us and around us. Now, fasting in the Christian tradition, in all of the apostolic churches, that is to say, in all the various liturgical rites, has acquired three basic expressions. Three basic expressions. They They have been found in every tradition. The first, which I've mentioned already, is the Eucharistic fast. The Eucharistic fast places the body and blood of the Lord in the first place before the food and drink of this world. So that this means that in the experience of the church, and there are mentions of this that go back at least to the second century. And if they go back to the second century, that means that they are under the umbrella of the era immediately following the apostles, the sub-apostolic era, as it's called. 
So that means that Holy Communion was always intended to be the first food that is received each day. And that's why through most of the year, in the traditional manner of celebrating the liturgy, the liturgy was celebrated in the morning so that people could observe the Eucharistic fast. Our contemporary practice of celebrating the Eucharist at any hour that is thought to be convenient is an innovation. Whether it is a good innovation, now innovation, I'm not using the word innovation as a bad word. Innovations can be good, innovations can be bad, but it is an innovation. Most of our Christian forebears, the saints, would have had no experience of the Holy Eucharist being celebrated at any hour you please. So it was celebrated in the morning, often very early in the morning, depending on the period of time and place. On the occasions when it was celebrated later, it was because you were supposed to prolong your fast on that day. So the celebration of liturgies in the late afternoon or evening was a rare thing associated with the keeping of vigils and penitential days, fast days, that you would prolong your fast more than usual before the receiving of Holy Communion. In the, in the Byzantine rite, uh, in which uh, that's the, the liturgical world in which I live, for example, on the Wednesdays and Fridays of Lent, we have a service that is called the Liturgy of the Presanctified, the Liturgy of the Presanctified Gifts, uh, specifically. And again, those of you who have a memory for the old Roman Missal will, will remember that title for Good Friday, the Mass of the Presanctified. It refers to the Holy Eucharist that has been consecrated previously so that there's not an actual consecration at that time. So in, in the Byzantine tradition on the Wednesdays and Fridays of Lent, you, those who are able keep a fast all day till the evening, then the Liturgy of the Presanctified is celebrated, uh, one receives communion, and then one has one's Lenten meal. So that's the first, the, the first application of fasting, the Eucharistic fast. The second application, I remember I said there are three. The second application, I've mentioned already, so I just will mention it once again without having to say much more about it. And that is on those two days of the week that from, again, apostolic times have been set apart as fast days, Wednesdays and Fridays. Again, the evidence is overwhelming throughout Christian history that the Christians on those days, unless it were during the Paschal season when they didn't do this, or unless a big feast day should fall on Wednesday and Friday, or Friday. But otherwise, on Wednesdays and Fridays, the, the fast of, of eating nothing throughout the day until after the hour of our Lord's death on the cross at three o'clock in the afternoon. That's the the consistent tradition. So that's the second application. So we have the Eucharistic fast, the weekly fasts, and then finally we have the seasonal fasts. 
Of course, we're talking about the greatest of the seasonal fasts right now, Great Lent, uh, Lent and Holy Week. Other seasons developed, again, quite early in the church's history, already in the fourth century after we hear of Lent, we hear of the period before Christmas. Once Christmas begins to be celebrated, a fast precedes it. Other churches in other places add other fasts at other times. The Roman church had the seasonal fasts of the ember days. Some churches had fasts in the summer after Pentecost until the apostles Peter and Paul, or a fast before the Assumption of Our Lady. St. Francis of Assisi speaks of, it's said of him that when he received the stigmata, it was, it was on the exaltation of the cross in September while he was keeping the preparatory fast for St. Michael the Archangel, Michaelmas, on September 29th. So you have, in addition to the Eucharistic fast, the weekly fast, you have these fasting seasons. And that's a summary of the observance, the traditional observance of, of fasting throughout the Christian world, not as some sort of exception, not as something uh, exotic or extreme, but was simply part of the very fabric of Christian life and assumed to be so through most of the history of the church. Let's have a break. Now, perhaps in considering all of this, and I did want to take the time to present to you the traditional rhythm and practice of fasting, Christian fasting, because um, my experience was when I learned about this in my teens, I learned about it by reading about it. Nobody told me about it. Um, I grew up in a very, uh, very devout uh, home, very devout Catholic home, and we kept the Friday abstinence and the other, and the other prescribed abstinence days. There were more of them then in the 1950s when I remember them than there are now. But no one suggests uh, going to the point where one actually experienced hunger, hunger uh, as the primary, you know, content of fasting. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons why uh, people get nervous when the topic of fasting comes up, and I'm convinced that the reason why it has been so neglected, so minimalized, is the unwillingness of people, unwillingness of people to impose upon themselves something that is going to result in being hungry. Although they will do it for other, re for other reasons often, for other goals. They will do it for dietary reasons, for example. They will do it for athletic training in some form or other. But when it comes to doing it as the expression of being hungry because, this is the whole point, because we are hungry for God, because he has made us as 
a union, a union of body and soul. We are not a soul imprisoned in a body that is discardable. The reason why we traditionally so show, excuse me, such reverence to the bodies of the departed is precisely to deny the neglecting the sanctity of the body that has become, again in our time, so common. Often now, even practicing members of the church are not given the traditional funeral service. I'm sure you've noticed this. Sometimes there will be what's called a memorial service, usually a long period of time after the death. Unlike the traditional funeral service, which is done uh, quite quite soon after death in 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 the traditional Christian cultures, it's treated the 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 way the body is treated is considered to be having having no real meaning, no real meaning. The body is disposable. Well, that's not our faith. The body is not disposable, neither in life nor in death. Our model is the body of Christ, the body of Christ, which he took directly, as St. Athanasius says, from a pure and, and blameless virgin. The body that he offered voluntarily, not as some sort of, of uh, receiving some sort of punishment by the wrathful father, the so-called penal substitution approach to speaking of the atonement, that God needed somebody to pour out his wrath on, and a creature wouldn't do, so he sent his son. That is another terrible distortion of the gospel, and rightly should be denounced. Rather, the Lord's, the singularity of the Lord's incarnation and everything that goes with it, his life in the flesh, his fasting, his prayer throughout the night, his bearing our infirmities. In St. Matthew's gospel at one point, it says after Jesus has healed the sick, and Matthew, as you know, loves to quote the Old Testament. And Matthew says, after Jesus has healed many sick people, surely he quotes the prophet Isaiah, surely he has borne our infirmities and taken upon himself our sicknesses. What's being inferred there is when Jesus heals people, he, he does not magically make that condition vanish, but rather in a way that's beyond our understanding, takes it upon himself. So in every way, our Lord's life is a voluntary sacrifice. His death is unique not because of the physical horrors that surrounded it. I think it very important to make that point. I am not personally in favor for that reason of too many graphic depictions of our Lord's sufferings. The reason for that is if improperly understood, it can focus the intention on the physical sufferings of our Lord, 
without focusing the attention on our Lord himself. Who is he who suffers? When 40 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord, when there was a revolt against the Romans in Palestine, the Romans crucified so many, soul, so many Jews, Jewish men, on the roads that led to Jerusalem, that the roads were lined with crosses. They ran out of wood to make crosses with. Agonized, crucified, dying men were a common sight in first century Israel. And so for us to think that it's simply the physical sufferings of our Lord that constitute his passion, that's very misleading. Some people suffered on the cross, not for between three and six hours, as the gospel says, but for a couple days. And then passing beyond crucifixion, what about the sufferings that have gone on in recent times? What about children being thrown into crematory ovens? What about even the sufferings of innocent people now in, in places like Ukraine? So what is it that makes the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, and along with those sufferings, the fasting that he took upon himself, what is it that makes it unique? It's unique because it's voluntary, voluntary, and completely voluntary, in a way that nothing that we can do can be completely voluntary. We can do things, good things, that are, to a degree, voluntary. You all are, I think, familiar probably with St. Maximilian Kolbe, the martyred priest during the, during the uh, Second World War, World, 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 World War in the Auschwitz concentration camp who volunteered, actually stepped out of line, which could get you shot in a concentration camp, stepped out of line and volunteered to take the place of a man who had been condemned to starvation. The commandant sentenced 10 men to starvation, uh, an involuntary fast, uh, to be deprived of all, all, not only food but and liquid, but all water, everything, until they died of it as a punishment for the escape of one prisoner. And because one of those men had a family and children, Maximilian Kolbe offered to take his place. We are told, by the way, that when he did that, he outlasted all the others and he turned that starvation bunker, which was like hell on earth, he turned it into a place of faith and praise and trust in God. And he was the last to die after everybody else had died there. And finally, they, they could only kill him by injecting him with carbolic acid. Yet, in his own words, he said, let me take this man's place. I'm old. I'm sick. I'm going to die soon anyway. I'm going to die soon anyway. So even something as heroic as St. Maximilian Maria Kolbe's decision is not totally voluntary. Totally voluntary is something that only God is capable of. Because even if you are so generous to give your life for another, you're only anticipating the inevitable. 
because you and I all will die. The only exceptions would be should the return of our Lord in glory come before all of us die, and then some of us might be there to meet him. But otherwise, we're all going to die. What about our Lord Jesus Christ? As a divine person, assumes our humanity. Is it inevitable that he is going to die? It's not inevitable. He does not bear the sentence that results from sin as we do. He himself is sinless. So how can he die? He can only die by a divine act of the will. The doctrine of the church is unanimous about that. By a an act of not only his divine, but his human will, because he has both wills, both faculties of choosing. And in both those wills, he voluntarily accepts death. In the Eucharistic prayer that, that's used in the Byzantine liturgy, these words are said. On the night in which he was given up, or rather, gave himself for the life of the world, gave himself up. The Holy Eucharist is the mystery of him giving himself up. That, that death will only take place, not as the result of his enemies, although they're part of it, but they, he says himself, no one takes away my life from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. This I have received from my father. So, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ is not some sort of tragic accident inflicted on him by his enemies. It is a voluntary choice that he makes out of love, not in a fatalistic way, like someone desiring suicide or something like that, but as a voluntary embrace of us who are held prisoners in death. Likewise, for the same reason, he fasts and endures. So if he expresses his love for us voluntarily in that way, shall we not in our bodies offer ourselves, as St. Paul says we must do, as a spiritual and living sacrifice to God? And one of the ways we do that is very you could say, uh, hands-on, because it involves, it, it takes place on the level of the, of the body, of the material, of the flesh, and that is through the embracing of the fast. So it is, on our part, an imperfectly partial, because that's all we can, we're capable of, a partial embracing of the voluntary perfect sacrifice of Christ. Now, we mentioned for this series that we would refer to uh, Father, Father Alexander Schmemann's well-loved book, Great Lent, and now I'll, re I'll refer to a passage in it. Father Alexander says, how far we are by now from the usual understanding of fasting as a mere change of diet, as what is permitted and what is forbidden. Ultimately, to fast means only one thing, to be hungry, 
to go to the limit of that human condition, which depends entirely on food and being hungry, discover that this dependency is not the whole truth about man. That hunger itself is first of all a spiritual state and that it is in its last reality, hunger for God. In the early church, fasting always meant total abstinence, a state of hunger, pushing the body to the extreme. Isn't it odd how we are accepting of such language in terms of what St. Paul says, those who are contending for a perishable crown, in terms of fitness or diet or appearance or longevity. We'll take all that language. But how is it that we have developed an allergy for it when we speak of it as an expression of hunger for God? Father Alexander says, it is here, however, that we discover also that fasting as a physical effort is totally meaningless without its spiritual counterpart, by prayer and fasting. So prayer must be joined to fasting and fasting to prayer. Intensification of fasting requires intensification of prayer. Both liturgical corporate prayer and the prayer that we make uh, when we at least appear to be by ourselves, though I always remind myself and everybody else, we're never really by ourselves. Being by oneself is an imagination. We're never alone, especially if we are in Christ who is never alone, always with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The hermits, and there still are hermits in the various wildernesses of the world, the hermits aren't alone either. But the prayer that we make, not in uh, a tangible corporate venue. Both those dimensions of prayer, liturgical and the, the prayer uh, apparently uh, that we make uh, by ourselves, as the Lord says when we do it, when we, we need to go into our room and shut our door and pray to our Father in secret. And during that prayer, within the, the context of that prayer, we find its relationship to hunger for God. Psalm 62, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or Psalm 72, when I am with you, O Lord, the earth delights me not. So it's only through an experience that can be described as intense, that we have access, not by our own efforts, because certainly we must avoid uh, this, the, again, referring to one of the questions that was asked last week, we must avoid an approach to fasting that is Pelagian, that looks, looks at it as self-perfection, that will take us nowhere and will and we'll dump us off at a dead-end street with the Pharisees who think that, who thought that they could attain righteousness before God through their own efforts. We know that's not possible for us. But on the other hand, it is that necessary balance between 
the, the synergy, as the fathers of the church call it, the synergy between our efforts and God's grace. And both are necessary. Otherwise, we have, if, we, if the self-righteous Pharisee is the danger of trusting in our own efforts, the, the opposite extreme, uh, saying that God will do it all and I don't have to do anything, turns God into a magician. So it takes both the Franciscan missionary, or, or mystic, excuse me, Angela Foligno, said that the Lord Jesus spoke to her saying, if you become the capacity, I will become the torrent. If you will become the capacity, I will become the torrent. So you must do something. That's the, that's the point. We must do something to have the capacity for the immersion into the mystery of the Lord's voluntary and total self-sacrifice for the life of the world. And the result of this is that it does provide us, even in this life, with a taste of the joy of the age to come. We will experience being at home with the Lord above the heavens, as St. Paul says in the letter to the Ephesians. We are already enthroned with Christ Jesus above the heavens. And we will experience the truth of that to the extent that we have provided the capacity for it, for him for his grace to transform us, to become, as the scripture says, partakers of the divine nature, to become, as the great mystics say, beholders of the uncreated light. So here are some words from a well-known author, Bishop Callistos Ware, Bishop of the Orthodox Bishop of Oxford in England, he summarizes his description of the Lenten observance. This is an uh, article of his entitled The True Nature of Fasting by saying this. And, and some of it uh, summarizes some of the things that I have already said, but we'll hear it in another, another way. Fasting, as traditionally practiced by in the church, has always been difficult and has always involved hardship. This is one of, I think, the delusions of the modern time, that it was easier for people in the past to fast, because in the past, life was so difficult anyway, that adding fasted to it didn't, fasting to it didn't change things very much. And some make the argument, well, the kind of fast that is spoken of as the traditional fast of the church assumes that you live in a close, a, a close community of Christians and an intense liturgical community that's observing the fast together. And the scattered lives that we live right now uh, don't provide, are not conducive to keeping the fast. And there might be a bit of truth in that. That might be the difficulty of our own particular time that there isn't much encouragement for what we're doing. We don't have 
a society anymore that can anyway be described as Christendom. There isn't, there isn't support, even, even if you mention traditional fasting to people in the church, many of them are horrified by the thought of it. They, it's something they've never heard of before. So Bishop Calistos Ware goes on to say that it's always been difficult. It's always involved hardship in one way or other. Many of our contemporaries are willing to fast for reasons of health or beauty. I've mentioned this already. In order to lose weight, cannot we Christians do as much for the sake of the heavenly kingdom? Why should the self-denial gladly accepted by previous generations of Christians prove such an intolerable burden to their successors today? Some of you have heard of the much-beloved Russian saint of the 18th century, Saint Seraphim of Sarov. Once Saint Seraphim of Sarov was asked why the miracles of grace, so abundantly manifest in the past, were no longer apparent in his own day, and to this he replied, only one thing is lacking, a firm resolution. And that is what modern folks need, a firm resolution. So the primary aim of fasting is to make us conscience, conscious of our dependence upon God, our hunger for God. That is the content of this season. God has promised that those who truly have this hunger for him, who in that hunger realize how desperately we need to be cured from our deeply rooted self-love and self-idolatry. We, we have a service in the Byzantine tradition. It's a special Lenten service. Everybody's got their special Lenten services in, in all the traditions. We have one. It's called the Great Canon of St. Andrew of Crete. It's a poem, a penitential poem. St. Andrew of Crete lived in the seventh century. He was a monk and then a bishop. And as he got toward his old age, he wrote a poem asking for God's forgiveness for his entire life. And being a Greek, uh, Greek poetry is expansive in its expressions and abundant in its words. So St. Andrew of, of Crete's penitential poem, the penitential canon it is called, is 320-some verses long. The, in, the, in the Greek manner, the, the Latin manner is to say it in a, in a restrained way with as few words as possible, only the words that you need. That's a legitimate expression of that tradition. It's not the Greek way. The Greek way is to say it in as many words as possible. So as so using all of the images that you can to make it sink in. And so St. Andrew wrote a poem of 320 odd verses. It's, he never meant it to be used except for his own, his own personal prayers, but it came into the liturgical use of the church. And so each Lent during the first week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it's divided into four parts. And it's sung in the church with the night office of Compline. And at every verse, 
You sing the refrain, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. And those who are able to do it, make a prostration all the way down to the ground. So it's done in four parts the first week because it's thought during the first week, you're, you're just entering into Lent and it takes some effort to do that. However, once you get to the fifth week, the whole thing is done at one shot. And there you are. For the, you can go to, the, in, in an Orthodox or Eastern Catholic church, you can go to this service and it goes on for a good long time. And you're singing all of these penitential lamentations. And what you could, you could summarize that whole multi-hundred verse poem into one of the verses that laments before God that I have become my own idol. I have become my own idol. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. The Lenten prayer of all of the traditions, the, the last one I'll give will be from the one that you know best, the Latin tradition. And it's a prayer that asks for something. Oh, by the way, here's I, I'll make a uh, I'll make a comparison. Along with the minimalization of fasting, there's another thing that has become neglected in contemporary times. That all of our ancestors in the faith and all the traditions of the church prayed for abundantly. And that is the gift of tears, the gift of tears. By tears, we are not speaking of working oneself up into some sort of artificial emotional state. That's not what the gift of tears means. It's a gift. It is bestowed by God. It is one of the outpourings of the grace of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, those tears, which are the blessed mourning of the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those tears are the means to joy. If any of you are fond, as I am fond of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, maybe you'll remember that scene after the ring has been destroyed. And Frodo and, and Sam awake from their long being unconscious and their return, their, their wounds are, are healing. And something that Sam has dreamed of for a long time, wondered if it would ever be possible to happen, that somebody would sing of their long, their long struggle in the War of the Ring. And a bard does do that, one of the elvish bards. And it's described in the book as they began to weep as he sang, and their tears became the very wine of blessedness and joy. It's a beautiful expression from uh, literature of the tears that are spoken of in the, in, the, in the gift of tears. Here is a poem that is from the Latin tradition used to be sung and still is where they use the old form of the divine office, used to be sung every day at Lodz. But I think it's a hymn that in the loss of so many liturgical treasures, not too many people know anymore. But this, uh, I remember it still. Jesus, salvation, son divine, within our inmost bosom shine, with light all darkness drive away.
and give the world a better day. Now, days of grace with mercy flow. O Lord, the gift of tears bestow. To wash our, our stains in every part, while heavenly fire consumes the heart. Rise, crystal tears, from that same source from which our sins derive their course. Nor cease till hardened hearts relent and softened by thy streams repent. Behold, the happy days return, the days of joy for them that mourn. May we of their indulgence share and bless the God who grants our prayer. May heaven and earth aloud proclaim the Trinity's almighty fame, and we restored to grace rejoice in newness, both of heart and voice. Amen. Lent, the joyful, tearful path to the resurrection. May it be good for all of us. Amen. Thank you so much, Father David. That was beautiful. All right, we'll take some time for questions now. So um, this is from an anonymous attendee who asks the following. When we speak of fasting and prayer going hand in hand, how specifically might our daily prayer routine change when we are fasting? That's a very good question. This is, this is the first thing that comes to mind. And that is to combine with our fasting the, the simple prayer of intercession for others. That over and over again, we hear in the New Testament of, for example, St. Paul spending his time of, of imprisonment and sleeplessness and hunger praying for the churches. The Lord says that prayer and fasting are the most efficacious means of contributing to the power uh, that brings down the strength of evil in the world. So I would say that if, if we are a little bit slack in the basic Christian expression of interceding for others by name, so I'll give you, since you ask, I, I, I don't like too much to talk about some of my own practices, but nevertheless, here's one. Uh, I try to pray for as many of the people that I have known in my life, living and departed. For, for some, the names are written down, others not. I have, at least to this point in my life, a considerable faculty of memory this used to be my favorite uh, form of prayer when I was driving. In, before I came here to Wyoming Catholic College, I had to do a lot of driving. I gave many talks and classes in many places. So two, sometimes three days of the week, I'd be driving. And I would use this form of prayer of using the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. But I would call down the mercy of Jesus on people by name, hundreds, thousands of people you know, and uh, I would I would suggest some form of, of that prayer to you combined with fasting for for the health and salvation of all that we know and love and also the health and salvation of those 
who may not have been so loving to us. So the prayer of intercession combined with fasting. When Jesus says, this kind can't be cast out except through prayer and fasting, he's talking about the deliverance of someone from the power of evil spirits. So for a good uh, uh, to be done for, for another, St. John Rivianet, the curé de Ars, said that when he would fast all day and then ask something, ask for a real concrete need of somebody, whether spiritual or, or physical, it didn't matter. He said he was never denied this. So as the, uh, the hymns of the church say, prayer and fasting are a wonderful weapon. Inez, why don't you go ahead and unmute yourself and you can ask the next question here. My question is about the different types of food for mm -hmm. the Eastern Rite, the Western Rite. And also, I, I somebody sent me something that Machu Gorge is talking about bread and, uh, and water only fasting. So can you explain a little bit about why uh, the... The West is just abstinence for poultry and, and red meat, while the East is also fish? Well, the best way to answer that is that through most of the history of the church, the abstinence was identical. This is only in modern times that, that you find the disappearance of the abstinence, especially in the West. The, 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 the traditional abstinences from meat, just to be very specific, since you asked specifically, meat, poultry, uh, all other animal products, eggs, dairy products, and so forth. The West doesn't seem to have the thing about fish that the East did. That, that's really the only difference. What about the, this this thing? I mean, I they, I heard from Machu Gorge, somebody sent me this, that the, the seers of Machu Gorge are asking that fasting would be just having water and bread. Bread and water. Well, the, remember remember the passage that I read from, from Agari about what they did in Jerusalem. Now, they didn't even allow bread. They had, instead of bread and water, they gruel, you know, porridge, boiled, boiled grain and water. This is a more extreme form of fasting that you find. For example, I'll, I'll give you an example from our own tradition. During the first week of Lent, what is recommended is that you only have, you know, a, a meal, as we would call it, not just every day, but only twice on Wednesday and Friday after the liturgy of the presanctified when you receive communion. And the rest of the days, either nothing at all or else, you know, bread and water or something uncooked. So there's a there for some days there are there is traditionally an increased degree of fasting the other now the the other probably the most direct example of this would be what is called again everywhere in every source as the paschal fast even the even the the uh, modern modern roman rite still mentions the paschal fast paschal fast is, of course, the tradition of that on Good Friday and Holy Saturday, you keep a total fast, or as close as you can get. And that's, that's another example of what has come down from the earliest ages of the church. And uh, again, you know, doing that is meant to be 
an expression of communion in the death of the Lord. So there certainly are times when a more intense uh, fast has been practiced. But overall, during the, during the fasting seasons, they're, they're developed quite similarly all through the church, east and west, this practice of, of abstaining from what are, what are considered to be the richer forms of food, obviously, animal foods, oil, wine. Does that help? Yes. The only thing is that white fish is okay. <laughs> Well, I can't answer that because I, I don't know. In in uh, see in, in the in the Eastern churches, actually, a distinction is made. This is kind of funny, but we, no, it won't hurt us to have something a little funny. Uh, a distinction is made between fish and shellfish because fish you can't have if you follow the the Eastern rule for the Lenten fast, except on two days, Annunciation and Palm Sunday. Because those are those are the days when the fasting is bent that far to allow fish on um, those two festival days. That's it. Shellfish, though, were uh, were traditionally allowed because they the the ancient people didn't consider them animals because they didn't have blood or bones. The a fish has blood and bones, but a, a you know a shrimp or a scallop or a clam doesn't. And now, of course, the question is not just the. Uh, we have to consider the spirit of the fast. In some parts of the world, uh, shellfish are cheap. They're easy, easily gotten. They're abundant. In some parts of the world, shellfish are a luxury. <laughs> so whether or not something that is uh, a, lo a luxurious food in a, in a given place should be used regularly in the Lenten fast, that's, I think, a question that one has to ask oneself. One can find all sorts of uh, and believe me, uh, uh, Eastern, Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholic people are experts <laughs> at finding all these, all these little hidden luxuries that there are strictly speaking allowed, but you have to ask, well, I mean, uh, uh, for example, uh, dark chocolate has no dairy products in it. So mm -hmm. shall I have a bar a day? You know, the letter and the spirit. Okay. Thank you so much, Father David. Um, this next question coming in, I think is really important because I think it speaks to uh, an idea which I've certainly heard um, kind of thrown around a lot. So this person is asking, is there any way that fasting can be replaced by an intended sacrifice or the um, taking on of a new positive habit, such as committing to more prayer or spiritual reading? Okay, it's a good question. Uh, this, this is what I would say, that... Fasting can be augmented, enhanced by all these things. Fasting cannot be replaced by anything but itself. I think this. I think this has this has been uh, this has resulted in in. Uh, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that our our questioner is is a misunderstanding. But there there can be a misunderstanding that. Uh, I, you know, I don't need fasting because I can, I can do, uh, I can give more to charity. Well, giving to charity is almsgiving. Almsgiving is good and necessary. In fact, if you fast without giving any, anything, any charitable acts, you have a kind of empty fast, says the gospel. But almsgiving is not fasting. And prayer is not fasting. 
And we are told that we are to do all three. And in regards to fasting, because that was our topic, you know, uh, that there that there is, this is what I wanted to impress on you, whatever you may decide to do with this. But I, w- I wish to impress on you that historically in the church, through most of her history, there has there has been and still is in much of the church uh, a way to fast. There is a way to do it that has been sanctified by generation after generation after generation of faithful Christian people, many saints doing that. So uh, you don't have to make it up on your own. So my my suge- my suggestion to someone now, I'm, and again, I want to I want to make clear. I'm not speaking of those cases when a person is unable to fast, objectively unable to fast. There are such people. One of them is a very great person, by the way, that uh, we just honored in the liturgical calendar, and that's St. Gregory the Great, Pope of Rome, one of the two popes to have uh, the title great officially. I mean, it's been used unofficially to some others, but only Leo and Gregory have the title officially still over all those 2,000 years. And Gregory, Gregory the Great, you know, at the, the turn of the, of the uh, 6th and 7th centuries, was uh, the, outstand, the outstanding preacher. He was loved by both the Greek and Latin churches. He was, he was the, when speaking of himself, he was the source of the term, the title, servant of the servants of God, admirable in, any, in every way. But he had he had chronic case of gastritis, very bad, and he could not go lengths of time without food, or he would become very very sick. And actually, one year at, at the at the Paschal Vigil uh, at St. John Lateran, which was the traditional place for the Paschal Vigil, uh, you know that's the Cathedral of Rome. Before the Paschal Vigil began, the the Pope, you know Gregory, turned to the people and, and bowed to the people and said. I confess to you that I have not been able to keep even the Holy Saturday fast this year that everybody keeps, he says. So there are those situations and everybody knows it. Uh, and, you know, of course it's understood, but on the other hand, the, the pattern that has been established for keeping the fast is meant to be something that is observable by the majority of people. And that's and that's how it, it developed in the church. Can I ask, um, just going a little further into this idea, um, people talk about like fasting from listening to the radio or, or from watching TV during Lent. Are those types of things appropriately considered fasting? Is that mortification in some other way? I think I think you could uh, describe them as uh, as penitential uh, practices that are related to fasting. I think you could extend the definition of the word to that, but it's an extension of a basic definition. The practice of fasting has to do essentially with our driven, it is a drive, our driven need to eat, to eat. Fasting has to do with eating. And there may be secondary applications, yes. Uh, certainly certainly people would, would uh, profit from such things as 
fasting from from media and social media and so forth, uh, excessive noise, excessive distraction. Yes, of course, all, all those things are good and perhaps even necessary in our time. But I would I would maintain that none of them in the biblical, patristic, liturgical, and traditional sense, none of them take the place of the basic understanding and experience of fasting as something to do with food. Father David, would you please conclude us in prayer? The Father is our hope, the Son is our refuge, the Holy Spirit is our protector, all Holy Trinity, glory be to you. Beneath your protection, we take refuge, Holy Virgin Theotokos. Do not despise our supplications and adversity, but deliver us from harm, O ever-glorious and blessed Virgin. Grant, Lord Jesus Christ, peace to the suffering land and people of Ukraine. Grant a quick end to the war, the return of the exiles. Grant forgiveness of adversaries and grant your healing to that tormented land. God is with us through his grace and love for mankind, always, now, and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.